Father, I pray that in this room right now, whether peace is flowing like a river or whether sea billows are breaking over the heart, that you would manifest yourself in such power and such nearness and such tenderness and such majesty that every need in this room would be touched stunningly with transforming, encouraging, life-giving, Christ-exalting power tonight. And I pray that as I undertake to put the picture of the movement from the Old to the New Testament before us and then take us into 2 Thessalonians 1, that you would anoint my lips and these ears so that the transaction is magnifying to Jesus Christ and a strengthening to our face and a purifying upon our churches and an advancement of your mission in this world. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament ends with this expectation, last chapter of the Old Testament. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under your soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Malachi 4, 1 to 5. There was no clear prophecy in the Old Testament that this day of the Lord, with its blazing judgment against evil and its healing and leaping for joy, would be in two stages separated by 2,000 years. The Old Testament prophetic perspective looked at the nearer and the farther mountain in the range of God's events that he is bringing on the world. And for them, that sequence of mountains was temporally indistinct. That is, God granted them to see and to say many true things about those mountains 
infallible things, no mistakes. But he did not grant them to see there were valleys between the mountains and how wide the valleys were. They couldn't tell. The day is coming, burning like an oven, and the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. So, when Jesus, the Messiah, arrived, not burning like an oven and not trampling down his enemies, but as the Son of Righteousness with healing, he created a glorious perplexity. It's glorious because in his coming, his living, his dying, his rising, his ascending, his reigning, he achieved once and for all stupendous and wonderful things for us. <coughs> and it's a perplexity because the completion of that accomplishment in the saints and in the creation isn't come yet, and we don't know when it will. Perplexity. So the purchase, the ransom of all the elect, all those who would believe in all ages, was completely and finally paid once and for all. Hebrews 9, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Or he was obedient unto death. And when he died, he said, it is finished. And that enabled Paul to say in Romans 5, by one man's obedience, the many will be appointed righteousness. So, in the first coming of Messiah, the punishment for sin and the provision of righteousness was finished. That payment and that perfection can never be improved or added to in any way. If we are united to Jesus by faith in Him, Savior, Lord, supreme treasure of our lives now, before the second coming, in this age, we can't be now or ever become more forgiven than we are. We cannot be now or become any more justified than we are. That's a remarkable achievement, and it was achieved. It is glorious. It's a glorious perplexity, perplexity. Because though we have been saved, Ephesians 2, salvation is nearer to us now than when we believed, Romans 13. Though we have been transferred into the kingdom of God's Son, Colossians 1, we are yet to inherit the kingdom, Galatians 5. Though we have been adopted into the family, Galatians 4, we wait adoption as sons, Romans 8. Though we have been perfected for all time, Hebrews 10, we are now being perfected, Galatians 3. 
Though we have been set free from the slave master of sin, he no longer has dominion over us, yet we do what we do not want to do, and we must kill it every day. Romans 8, Romans 6. Though we have passed from death to life, John 5, we will die, Hebrews 9. Though we have become a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, we await the resurrection of our bodies, Romans 8. And though we have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, we see in a glass darkly, and when he appears, we will see him like he is and be made like him. So, when Christ came into the world, he set in motion a glorious perplexity. So, to the Old Testament saints and prophets, the future mountains of of salvation for God's people and judgment on those who reject him looked like one mountain. They didn't know when Messiah came into the world and began to recite Isaiah 61 in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor that he would stop one semicolon before and the day of vengeance to our God. They didn't know that was going to happen. As if Jesus would say with Isaiah 61, uh, that clause, that's 2,000 years out. <laughs> and, and in the meantime, there's the evangelization of the world called the times of the Gentiles. But actually, no, he didn't say that. And he couldn't. And that adds to the glorious perplexity. So when it gradually dawned on these disciples, this is not going the way we expected. And it's going to turn out very badly. It looks to us like painfully not triumphantly as they'd hoped. When that began to dawn on them and they knew he's going to leave us. He's going to leave us. And he's going to send the Holy Spirit as a helper. They naturally asked, how long are you going to be gone? When will you come and finish establishing the kingdom? And to their dismay and our perplexity, here's what Jesus said. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. But the Father only. So Jesus, the God-man, in his human nature, this is my interpretation, 
in his human nature, did not know the time of his second coming. He knew enough, knew something, so that when his followers said to him, it's near, isn't it? Luke 19, he responded with a parable that began like this. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Not a near country. He knew that much. How far? (laughs) He didn't know how far. Now that's a very important fact. We need to keep it in mind. Always keep it in mind. When we read the New Testament. And when we read statements like, The end of all things is at hand. 1 Peter 4, or behold, I am coming soon, Revelation 22, or the Lord is at hand, Philippians 4, or the coming of the Lord draws near, or behold, the judge is standing at the gate, James 5. If we read those statements as if the authors knew when Jesus was coming, we misread them. Not even the Son knows. To claim to know when the Son doesn't know is a sin, not just a mistake. So when James says, the coming of the Lord is near, he is standing at the gates, he is echoing with the word angiken, near, and the word gates, precisely the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 33, so also when you hear all the, when you see all these things, you know he's near, at the gates. So the picture that we should have in our mind when we hear nearness words is not that He's on the way, and he's about 300 miles out, which means we have a week. That's not the way we're supposed to hear it. He's not 300 miles out. He's at the gate. He's always been at the gate. He's not on the way from anywhere. That's not the picture. He's at the gate, just outside the city of time. So what's the point? The point is, don't presume upon any gap in which you can cease to be vigilant, ready, doing your assigned task. Listen to the Lord. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing his job when he comes. But 
If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the point is, not distance, delay, indifference, delinquency. The point is nearness at the gates. Spiritual vigilance, doing our job, ready. Therefore, he says, Matthew 24, 44, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, especially if you get drunk on the world and lose all your spiritual sensitivities. What keeps him out is not distance, but sovereign purposes of patience, mercy, and judgment. Second Peter 3, 9. So, perplexity. The perplexity about the time of the second coming runs right through the New Testament. Jesus deals with it, Luke 19, 12, Acts 1, 8. James deals with it, 4, 8, and 9. Peter deals with it, 1 Peter 4, 7, 2 Peter 3, 3, following. And Paul deals with it. And the place where Paul deals with it most extensively is in the Thessalonian letters. And most focused and most detailed in 2 Thessalonians. Therefore, the rest of this message will be in 2 Thessalonians 1. My closing message will be in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3. My aim is to unpack the meaning and relevance of the second coming according to 2 Thessalonians. So let's read. I hope you'll open your Bible because I'm going to be really detailed and you've got to see it. You've got to see it. And if you don't have a Bible, then you can uh, listen later with your Bible open. We ought always, this is verse 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. There's the situation that precipitates everything else he's going to say. They are enduring persecutions and afflictions. Next, next phrase, verse 5. This, this persecution, affliction, and your enduring, this is evidence 
of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just right to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, what what end? You've got to be ready to marvel. You've got to, be, you've got to be worthy, made worthy by the sufferings, made worthy to glorify and to marvel. Don't be called a guard un, with an unmarveling heart, an unglorifying heart. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of the calling this upward calling, the calling, and may fulfill every good resolve and work of faith by, by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus would be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God. When, when you're made worthy to magnify and glorify him at his coming, it will not be because you are worth it. Come back to that. Because it's all according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What sets the stage for Paul's teaching on the second coming? It's the persecution and affliction of the believers. Verse 4, Paul boasts about the, among the churches, about the steadfastness and faith and love of these believers in all your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. And when he adds the words afflictions to persecutions, he broadens out the experience. It's a bigger word, broader word. To every manner of oppression and discouragement that Christians must pass through on the narrow and hard way that leads to life. The word hard in Jesus' words there is the verb for afflictions. Oppressed. That's the way, that's the path that leads to life. And as you walk that path of obedience and encounter that, that's the situation here. There's nothing unusual going on in Thessalonica in the matter of suffering. That's Paul's point. He had told them in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 3 and 4, this. Let no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed for this, destined for this, 
put there for this. This is God's design. He, he taught them this from the beginning. Just like he did all the churches in Acts 14.22, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. We kept telling you, he says in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians 3, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer these afflictions. Nothing unusual is going on in Thessalonica. It's just normal. It is normal and abnormal. It's normal to be persecuted. Abnormal not to be. All Christians walk this path, Romans 8, 17. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Now, this is why what Paul says about the second coming is so relevant for us. It relates to our afflictions, especially those that come from other people because we're Christians. It's normal. These are God-appointed sufferings. Astokamitha. Unto this we are set, appointed by God. Afflictions for all believers, all churches, all times, some more, some less. And here's the fundamental thing Paul says about that to them and to you. Verse 5 at the beginning of the verse. This, that affliction, that persecution you're enduring is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. It's a sign that God is dealing, judging, deciding, governing justly in your afflictions. He's doing it rightly, not wronging anyone or doing anything amiss. So the question becomes, how, how is God showing the righteousness, justness, rightness of appointing such afflictions, which is what he says he's doing? How, how does he, how is it an evidence? How does he show that this is right, this is good? How does he do that? And Paul gives three answers right there in the text. This is what you'd see if you were doing what I'm doing. All three of these answers to that question, how's this right? That you've appointed for the Thessalonians such afflictions and, and persecutions. How's that a right judgment? All three answers to this come to climax at the second coming. So he takes them there. I mean, would, you, would you take people to the second coming if you walked into a, a situation of persecution and calamity and affliction? Would you, is that what you would do? Let's, let's go to the second coming and fire. I think we should learn how to deal with the second coming as well as what it is from the New Testament. So here is the first answer for, now, why is this a right judgment that you have ordained for these people to walk through affliction? Middle of verse 5. It's right because 
it has this design and this purpose, namely, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. That's why. That's why it's just. That's why it's good. That's why it's right that God passes judgment, and the judgment is you get persecuted. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. In other words, even though, listen carefully, even though the reality of justification by faith alone on the basis of Christ alone is how we are accepted by God, forgiven by God, adopted into the family, have entrance into the kingdom. Nevertheless, throughout the whole New Testament, God considers it just, righteous, fitting to make the ungodly justified ones godly in preparation for the second coming. Do you get it? The whole New Testament sweep is designed, and this is your ministry, this is your main ministry to saints, to so minister that they are made worthy to meet Christ, glorifying and marveling and not ashamed. What does worthy mean? Are you stumbling over that word? Me made worthy? Me made worthy of the kingdom? Yes. Yes. What does it mean? It doesn't mean deserving. It doesn't mean deserving of the kingdom. Just do a little word study on oxios. Do a little word study on worthy, and you find something like this. Matthew 3, 8, John the Baptist. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Hmm. That does not mean deserving repentance. doesn't even make sense. The fruits come after repentance. Bear fruit worthy. What does that mean? It's translated in almost all versions, in keeping with, as befits. That's the meaning of worthy. Is your life, through your afflictions, being made suited, fitted, prepared, appropriate, in sync with the glory that's coming? Or are you just shut through with worldliness, even watching the halftime show of the Super Bowl? Shame on you. I didn't watch it. I saw the previews. Three seconds, but okay. Really? That doesn't get you ready for the second coming. Not like this. You need a little suffering after that. I'm serious as I can be. It was just. Verse 11 turns it all into a prayer. So you can see it again. This making you worthy through suffering is one of the reasons why it's a just judgment. Verse 11, to this end, namely to get you ready to glorify and marvel instead of be terrorized at the second coming, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. There it is. This is the beginning and the end of this text. This is what it's about. This is what preaching is for, whether it's on the second coming or anything else. We preach to make our people worthy of 
of the calling that they have in Christ now and the calling they will have at the end when they rise to meet him in the air. How does it make them worthy? That God may fulfill every good resolve, every resolve for good, and every work of faith by his power. So, divine power through affliction, purifying faith, turning good resolves into actual works of love, weaning us off the love affair with the world, fitting us to glorify Jesus when he comes, end of verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace that all this affliction and all my preaching and all your small groups and all the prayers, the grace flowing through them to make you a radically different kind of people. So, summing up this first answer. Paul has three answers to the first one. The God's judgment in our affliction is shown to be good, right, righteous judgment because its design is to make us worthy of his appearing. I, I just invite you now for just 30 seconds to think about people you know, even yourself maybe, who are spiritually and emotionally utterly unfitted to do verse 12 or verse 10. Let's think of the people in your church. Do they even think in these categories? Like, I've got one life. I've got one life. What should I do? Get ready to magnify. Get ready to glorify. Get ready to marvel. If you're not working on your heart, what are you going to do when he shows up? What are you going to do? All I've done is watch television. <laughs> You've got a really hard job. Taking people who are saturated with the world almost their entire life, and they get, you get one hour with them to change their whole worldview, whole perspective on why they're on the planet, what they should do with their mind and their heart, You've got to teach them how to understand their sufferings because if they get mad at God while they're being afflicted, they're totally out of touch with what they need. Our affliction is God's infirmary to heal us from the disease of worldliness and to fit us to marvel at Christ when he comes. That's argument number one for why the main point of the text, namely, it's beautiful, right, good, just judgment that God is exerting when he brings affliction on this people in Thessalonica. Reason number one, I want to get you ready. Make you beautiful, bride. Number two, here's a second reason why Paul gives for how this affliction is a righteous judgment. It's found in verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just, same word, righteous, righteous judgment, just to repay 
with affliction those who afflict you. That's reason number two why what's happening to you is right, good, just. And to paraphrase, they're not going to get away with it. They're not. They're not going to go unpunished, those people who are slandering you or throwing you in prison in China or kidnapping you in Iran or cutting off your head in Nigeria. They're not going to go unpunished. There will be a balancing of the scales. That's the point of saying the afflictors will be afflicted. See that? The afflictors will be afflicted. Justice will be done. But it's crucial to see not in this life. That's, that's really important for you people to realize the abuse that they endure, the injustices that befall them, a little bit might be rectified, but we're not to count on it until this happens. We'll get to the when in just a minute. If, if your people or you don't realize that this solution, this second reasoning for why it's a just judgment doesn't happen until the end, you will be tempted to take matters into your own hands and become vengeful. I do it. I do it with my wife. Like she says something I don't like. A reaction is not like, oh, that'll be taken care of at the last day. She'll, she'll be, shown to be shown to be wrong. I'll be vindicated at the last day. Or vice versa. I, 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 I take that really seriously. I, I just think, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, relates to burned toast. <laughs> or, I don't eat burned toast, so I just make that up. <laughs> this is really relevant. If, if you don't teach your people to lay it down, God will settle accounts. Be free. Be free. You don't need to carry this around all your life that you're going to settle accounts for that. Lay it in his hands. His shoulders are broad. His axe is sharp. He's going to do it far better than you. Perfect. Perfect. You'll never do it perfect. So that's argument number two. It's a right judgment, a righteous judgment that God ordains that afflictions come to the Thessalonians first because it's designed for their holiness in preparation for marveling at Christ's coming, and second, because those who are perpetrating it will not get away with it. It's a righteous judgment. Counts will be settled. Here's the third one. First half of verse 7. One more explanation. Let's start in verse 6. God considers it just or righteous to repay... That was the point I just made. To repay with affliction those who afflict you. And here's the third one. To grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. 
His judgment is righteous in our affliction because he has appointed relief. Their afflicting will be repaid with affliction and your being afflicted will be repaid with relief. And I think that when we contemplate the staggering degree of suffering that the church has endured for 2,000 years, America being a little, little blip of unreality in the history of the world, when we consider the staggering amounts of horrible suffering that Christians have endured for 2,000 years, I don't think we should think of the relief as absence of toil merely, or absence of pain merely. No, no, no. Jesus said in his words about the second coming, enter into the joy of your master. (laughs) So this relief is not mainly passive, it's not mainly absent. It's gloriously absent of all pain, and gloriously full of divine joy giving me capacities to enjoy him beyond anything I ever knew. So this relief here, which vindicates the rightness of the judgment, is more than absence of toil. Remember Jesus said to those who are enduring much hardship, great is your reward in heaven. When the the relief comes, it will be beyond your imagination. Here are the words of Paul. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Now, those three arguments, those three explanations of why Paul is that suffering and they're enduring an evidence of right judgment? Answer one, because there's a design in it to get them ready with joy and capacities for marveling at the second coming that they need so bad. And two, they're not going to get away with it, those who are causing this problem. And you will get relief at the last day. So don't think God has neglected to write down all your suffering so that they get appropriate responses in the age to come. When do those three things come to climax? And I already said they come to climax at the second coming. So let's read starting in the middle of verse 7 and go through verse 10 to see when. What's the when question here? When? It will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting that vengeance that I talked about, inflicting that vengeance on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. At that moment, of the Lord's coming, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. All of them. It's not like a little group in Palestine in 70 AD. 
This is they, those who don't know God, those who've not believed the gospel, they will be cut off, destroyed. Eternal punishment, I mean, verse 9, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, risen, and alive, because our testimony to you was believed. Now that's a description of the most terrible and the most glorious event in the history of the world as far as the experience of the church is concerned, the second coming of Christ. If you don't like me using the term second coming because it's not a technical New Testament phrase, just always hear coming, parousia, fine, coming. Paul tells us nine things about it. Let me just name them. Nine things about the parousia, the coming, the second coming. Number one, middle of verse seven, it's a revelation, an unveiling. When the Lord Jesus is revealed. So now he's hidden, right? Oh, oh, we wish he were not. Come, Lord Jesus. He's hidden, and he will be revealed. Number two, this revelation will happen by a coming, a coming, not by a vision, not by a dream, not by an apparition. It will be a revelation event. It will, he will come. He has a body. He can move through space, and he will come as he went. Acts 1.11, in a glorified, visible, physical body. Number three, he will come from heaven. Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. That's where he reigns today, at the right hand of the Father. And now he comes, his throne moves from there to here. Number four, middle of verse seven, he comes with powerful angels. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, they, they come with him for a glorious entourage. How fitting is that? And they come to gather the saints. So Jesus says he'll send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds. That's their function primarily here besides glorifying Christ. Number five. He comes in flaming fire. Hmm. Jesus had said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will say to those on his left, depart into eternal fire. So I'm trying to think, okay, what's the point of coming with fire? What, what's, what's on fire? burning. I don't know. Perhaps Paul means that he comes with fire in the sense that the unapproachable, flaming, 
purity of God is the way hell is torched as he casts people into it, like fire. At any rate, coming with fire. Number six, his coming will be with vengeance. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. So all the wrongs righted, either punished, forgiven, everything dealt with. Everybody receives their appropriate sentence. Number seven, middle of verse eight, he specifies two groups of humans who experience the vengeance. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's one group he describes as not knowing God, another group, they don't obey the gospel of our Lord. I think, I think there are two groups. There might be one, but I think there are two. And if you ask, which I did, wait a minute, Paul says in Romans 1.21, everybody knows God. They all know God. Every human being on the planet knows God. That's why they're guilty. Because they don't glorify him as God. That's it's true. But they suppress that truth, according to verse 18 of Romans 1. And a person who is suppressing his knowledge of God, of him can be said, knowing he does not know God. Knowing God, he does not know God. Seeing they do not see, knowing they do not know. It's not wrong here for Jesus to say, he's going to judge those who don't know God. Those who suppressed the knowledge of God so that the knowledge of God wasn't in their minds consciously with no worship and no glorifying and no obedience, they go down even if they've never heard the gospel. And those who have heard the gospel and don't obey it, they go with them. Number eight, the vengeance is described three ways. One, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Verse nine. Two, this ruin, this eternal ruin, will include a separation from the presence or the face of the Lord. Number three, it will include a separation from the glory of his might. So here's the picture I have when I hear that. The face and presence of God, the countenance of God, is where we will spend eternity and find eternal blessedness, joy, happiness. In his presence is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. To be separated from that is to go into the opposite of a smiling face, namely a very dark discountenancing. The opposite. Here's the, here's the countenance, the face, the smile, the blessing, the joy. You turn away and get totally separated from that countenance. All that's left is the darkness of his disapproval. And when you are under the darkness of the disapproval of the Almighty, 
the power of God is not glorious, it's terrifying. Number nine, this is the last one. The ultimate purpose or the aim of the second coming is in verse 10. I think one of the most important verses in the Bible when it comes to trying to decide what are we about? <laughs> What's Bethlehem College and Seminary about? What are your churches about? What's your, your eighth decade about, Piper? He comes on that day. This is what, what he aims to do. He comes on that day, when he comes, to be glorified in his holy ones, his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Now, let me just close with three observations about that amazing purpose statement of the second coming. Number one, this is Christ's purpose, right? He comes to be glorified. He comes to be glorified. This is Christ's purpose. So, it's fair to say, here, what we are reading is Christ's aim to be Christ-exalting. Christ is Christ-exalting in His coming. He aims to get your marvel. He aims to get glory. That's why he's coming. I'm coming to be glorified. I'm coming to be marveled at. I am the center of this event, and I mean to be. And you just own that, preach that. The ultimate purpose of Christ in all things is the glorification of Christ. As Colossians 1.16, all things were created by Christ and for Christ, by Christ, for Christ. Get it? Why did he create them? For himself. Just as creation happens by Christ and for Christ, so the second coming happens by Christ and for Christ. That's number one observation about this purpose. Number two, notice it does not say that the aim is the glory of Christ. It could, and it would be true. But what it says is the aim is the glorifying or glorification of Christ in a human and the marveling at Christ in a human, the bride of Christ, humans. That's really big for a Christian hedonist like me. Really big. In other words, the ultimate aim of all creation exists most essentially in the Christ-exalting acts of the heart of the redeemed. I mean, you know, if, if you read some famous theologian who waxes eloquent about the new heavens and the new earth, like, 
all the planets, all the galaxies, all the mountains, all the rivers, all the oceans, all the tsunamis, all the volcanoes, changed, new, glorious. That's true. It's just not very significant. <laughs> Comparatively. It's just stuff. It's just stuff. You're not stuff. You live in stuff. You're all woven with stuff. You want your stuff to be resurrected. <laughs> but I'll tell you what this universe is about. It is about human beings with souls being made worthy to glorify and marvel at the King of Kings. That's what we're ministering toward. I did a little interview with, with Tripp. They did a little video here a couple hours ago, and I set it up like this. They, they said, what new thing have you learned about God? I said, he doesn't have any new attributes. Like, I've I, I read them all. They said, okay, that's not what we mean. I said, I know what you mean, and here's my answer. You got a chance to preach a sermon on Sunday morning here. Two sermons, you got to choose between the two. First sermon, the effect of the sermon is the whole universe is transformed by your sermon. The entire universe, material universe, all the galaxies, all the mountains, all the oceans, all the tsunamis, all the volcanoes, all the hurricanes, all the diseases, gone. One sermon. Awesome. Here's the... But, but in this sermon, nobody gets changed at all. No hearts are changed, just stuff. And over here, you get to teach one sermon, and one human being is brought from death to life, and their hearts no longer see and savor and speak of God as boring, insignificant, small, but they are aflame with love. A flame with righteousness towards God. A flame with zeal for his name. Which sermon are you going to preach? And you get to do it every Sunday. Let him change the world. You do the important thing. The universe will be our playground. Right? Romans 8 is in the Bible. Um, but they're inheriting my freedom, the freedom of the children of God. Your people's hearts are the reason the universe exists. That's second observation. And the last one, let me close, the third implication of this purpose in verse 10 to glorify and to marvel at the Son when He comes. The, th the third one is that God is mainly in this age, in regard to the church, He is mainly, and I, I don't, I mean, I'm assuming the ingathering of the elect through world evangelization, and you should live for it and die for it, all right? We're going to gather the elect by preaching the gospel indiscriminately to every human being. We're going to grow the church that way. But your job as a pastor is to do something with regard to the sheep. 
and, and here's what it is. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. To this end. To, to what end? What does he mean, to this end? Well, the end, the end of fitness, worthiness, to glorify Christ and marvel at Christ when he comes. Or, as he says in verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So we glorify him by marveling at him, considering him to be more marvelous than anything on television or anything in the world, or all the galaxies. And they're pretty marvelous. And Christ is more. Now, how does he do that? How does he make you worthy? Get ready. Last two sentences. Verse 5. Your affliction is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. That's how he does it. At least that's the one that's highlighted in this chapter. He does it through prayer. He does it through preaching. He does it through small groups. That's not here in this chapter. This chapter is a righteous judgment of God called affliction and suffering by which we are made worthy of the kingdom of God so that when he comes, we will not be ashamed, but rather glorify him and marvel at him. So, suffering, and I think you can extrapolate here, even though this is mainly focused on persecution because you've got vengeance on, on the bad guys, you can extrapolate the purpose out to all God-ordained suffering. Namely, it's designed to redirect our marveling. Redirect our marveling. Now, it could be negative here. I'm, I'm choosing the word redirect. I, I don't think I've ever used this word before. I could say kill sinful marveling, which is biblical, but I'll just leave it redirect because it's good to marvel. It's good to marvel at some world, you know, nature. You should marvel. By suffering, he redirects our marveling at the world and puts it on Christ. That's what suffering does. And if, you're, if that's not happening for your people, they may not be well taught. They have to be taught this. People don't naturally do this. You have to teach them. And the main thing you should be doing before they have cancer is teach them how to get cancer. How to lose a loved one. That's what you're for. You, you prepare people to understand reality. And the reality is God has appointed affliction so that they'll be considered worthy. And, they, and he does it by, here I am just gloating or glutting myself on the world and, and along comes uh, suffering that lays me flat on my back and that doesn't look so attractive anymore. I desperately need something bigger and longer than that and either I'm going to get mad at God or I'm going to find it. And that's what this is for. This righteous judgment that comes, it comes in the climax of the second coming all satisfying, marveling at Christ. Let's pray. So I know, Lord, that in this room right now that there are hundreds who are walking through things relationally and physically 
that don't want to be made light of. And I pray that you would apply this in their case to lighten their load. Because they can know as a child of God that you're not mad at them. That's been born. You are making them worthy, making them worthy to exult as they never would otherwise at the coming of Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.